So this morning we're going to continue in our sermon series, uh, focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, as a refresher, we heard from Pastor Steve talking about uh, two gates and two paths. And we're in uh, the part of the sermon where Jesus is kind of applying some of the things he's been talking about and teaching by uh, uh, using these word pictures with comparisons of, of pairs of things. And so last week, we, as I said, talked about two gates and two paths of life, one leading to destruction, one leading to eternal life. Um, and this morning, we are going to talk about two trees. Uh, so let me pray, and then we'll go in. Father, we're grateful uh, that uh, you have called us here. We're grateful to be in your house this morning. We're grateful that you love us and that your word is truth, and that you are unchanging. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts so what it is you'd have to teach us this morning through your word. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Okay, so this passage uh, that we're in this morning comes on the heels of Jesus uh, teaching us about two gates and two paths, uh, one path leading to destruction, the other to life. Um, and the reason why that's important for us to hold on to as we approach this passage this morning is because that signals to us that these false prophets that Jesus is teaching us about that are disguised are going to be people that are pointing us to the wrong path. Uh, through the wrong gate, the gate that leads to destruction. So what we need, to, we need to keep that in mind and what that tells us as Jesus begins this, this paragraph by saying, beware of, that teaches us that these false prophets are going to be inevitable. These false prophets are going to be a normal part of our lives. And not only that, they're going to be disguised. And so the way that Jesus begins uh, this, this teaching should be a clue to us or be an encouragement to us or a sign to us that we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter people that teach uh, things other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I say that, and some people may be wondering, well, why is that the case? And the reality is that false prophets, frauds, scammers, these uh, people like these have been around for a long, long time. Uh, Kevin highlighted the Old Testament passage this morning that came from Jeremiah, where God was essentially taking these people to task, highlighting the fact that they're just blowing smoke and they're not really saying anything of substance or anything in line with what uh, his word actually is. And a few verses prior to the one that you'll find in the bulletin, the prophet Jeremiah, inspired by God, says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, 
it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So these prophets that Jeremiah is speaking about at the time essentially are just telling people whatever it is they want to hear. They're just filling their ears with words that make them feel good about their lives and what they're doing, and not necessarily what they need to hear from the mouth of the Lord. And that is what it means to make the way or the gate wide and the way broad. And basically, it's as if the very nature of a false prophet is to make the way of life easier, is to make the way of life seem broad. It's to make, uh, basically, it seem like there are other ways of life uh, without uh, relying on Jesus as our one and only Savior. But I think it's also important for us to consider the ultimate source of the reality of these false prophets. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes two letters to the church in Corinth, and in his second letter, Second uh, Corinthians, Paul is advising his fellow Christians about uh, these false prophets. Um, he says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So whoever these false prophets are, whoever these people that we will encounter and probably already have encountered in our lives are, no matter how good their words seem, no matter how good their actions even sometimes may seem, ultimately they're masquerading as, as frauds. They're not, tr- they're not truly teaching Jesus as the one true living God, and they're not living as if that is true in their lives either, ultimately, behind closed doors. Um, I found this quote helpful uh, regarding uh, this point. One author says this, In short, humanity in Adam is now the false prophet who misrepresents God's word in a futile and treasonous demand for autonomy. The false priest who corrupts God's sanctuary instead of guarding it, keeping it and extending it. And the false king who is no longer the medium of God's loving reign, but now exercises a cruel tyranny over the earth and other human beings. So the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, turns out, is the, the original scene of false prophets. All of this uh, disguised behavior, all of this phony teaching, all of this, this chasing of, of life in misguided directions can be traced back to when Adam and Eve were tempted and failed to obey God in the Garden of Eden. And the reason why that's important is because that gives us a pattern to look out for when we encounter false prophets because they can be hard to recognize, as Jesus said, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And if we even take a look at Satan's strategy, we can see how how sinister and how subtle it can be uh, because he didn't come outright and say, hey, Adam, Eve, disobey God real quick. He said, did God really say? He created a seed of doubt within their minds and caused them to question God's word And then he says, you will not surely die when you eat the fruit, but you will become like God. And who wouldn't want to be like God? Who wouldn't want to be all-powerful, all-knowing, not surprised by anything? I'd love not to be surprised. And so he disguises his words, he disguises the gate in the way that leads to destruction and packages it in something that sounds good and that we would want 
to be a part of. It's like if I wanted to get a car that I knew was faulty off my hands, I wouldn't tell somebody that I was selling it to that it's a busted car. I would highlight whatever remained good about it. And when it comes to spotting false prophets, spotting bad teaching, uh, there are obvious things that we can pick up on that we can hear or read and be like, well, that's definitely not biblical. It's definitely not from God. But then there are more subtle things, things that sound good, things that are, are nice, quick sayings to have off the cuff whenever you feel a little uncomfortable about the way that you're choosing to live or somebody else feels uncomfortable about the way they're choosing to live. You only live once. You do me, or you do you, I'll do me. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. Love is love. One time, um, I was catching up with a friend that I went to college with, and we were both in seminary at the time. Uh, not at the same seminary, uh, which will be important for this story. But um, <laughs> uh, he, I uh, uh, forget what exactly we were talking about, but somehow he, uh, the statement became relevant, and he said, um, I think that we need to have the humility to embrace the fact that Jesus might not be the only way to heaven. And I looked at him, I don't, I don't think I said this to him, but internally I was thinking, well, like, why the heck are you in seminary? What, this feels like it would be a waste of time for both of us if that were the case. Um, but that's how, that's how false prophecy works. That's how false prophets work. It sounds good, but when you get to the root of it, you realize it, does, it doesn't have any solid foundation. Even the statement, what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me, is really convenient and sounds great. But basically what that statement is saying is that truth is relative. And that statement can't stand because you can't establish an absolute truth and say truth is relative. The two don't work together. It's, it's logically impossible. And so Jesus' warning about false prophets includes an assumption that we have to hold on to if we're ever going to have hope of avoiding falling into false prophecy, which is the fact that there is objective truth for us to know. Why else live by these statements that widen the gate, that widen the way of life, if not to just avoid having to submit to something? Um, and I think that's a problem that ultimately a lot of us, if not all of us in this room, wrestle with, is that we struggle to submit, whether it's the truth, whether it's to other people, to authority. And so we create statements like the ones that I mentioned just now that make things a little bit easier, or at the very least will keep you from feeling uncomfortable, uncomfortable about the way you live and keep other people at an arm's distance and allow those other people to do what they want without infringing on your comfort or their comfort. But we can't afford to believe that lie because otherwise, why hold on to this faith that we come here every Sunday to proclaim? And so it's th those subtle false prophecies that we have to look out for. It's way easier to spot... Uh, very blatant fake or bla very blatant fraud, but it's the sinister, subtle ones that we have to keep an eye out for. I read a quote from one pastor who said, after all, the greatest enemies of the Christian faith are not those out in the world militantly persecuting Christianity or flagrantly ignoring its teachings, but instead those who have a false and spurious Christianity. So the question remains then, how can we 
How can we sort out the legitimate from the frauds? How can we sort out the fake from the real? Well, it comes on the heels of Jesus' warning about these false prophets. He sandwiches the next few lines with the statement, you will recognize them by their fruit. And so whatever this fruit is, it is the thing that we have to look out for in order to understand who is a false prophet and who is the real thing preaching Jesus Christ. And for this particular audience, these, this crowd on the mountainside that Jesus is teaching to in this passage, um, for this particular word picture he chose, they would have been really familiar with it because this, this thorn bush that Jesus is referring to has a fruit that looks a lot like a grape. And so from far off, and if you're not paying attention, uh, these people would have, been, would have harvested these, these fruits, these grape-like things, to make wine, only to find out that the juice that they actually made is far from the thing that they expected and that they hoped for. Similarly, the thistle, uh, the flower of, of this plant, resembles a fig. And so they would have reached out for this, this thistle, only to find out that, oh, this isn't what I wanted either, nor is this giving me what I need. And so similarly, we have to be able to, to discern whether or not a person is pointing us in the right, through the right gate by looking at the fruit of their lives, which leads to the question, well, what does Jesus actually mean by fruit? There's a lot of metaphors and word pictures in the Bible about fruit and trees. What is he actually talking about? Um, later on in, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus uh, is confronting uh, religious leaders of the time, and he says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good, good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Elsewhere in Matthew, a little later on, Jesus will have a conversation with his disciples about the same principle, and he says, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in these uh, interactions with Jesus, I think we can conclude that when he speaks of fruit, when he speaks of recognizing people by the fruit of their lives, he's referring to their words, most obviously, um, their character, and also their influence. And as far as what exactly should we be looking for um, when it comes to fruit in someone's life, uh, Jesus spent really most of the sermon uh, giving us the criteria for that. Uh, is a person's character, uh, do they recognize their poverty of spirit? Do they recognize their need for mercy? Do they seek peace? Or do they like to stir up controversy? Are they humble? Do they seek to serve others before themselves? In their words, do they do the same things? Do they, they preach about poverty of spirit? Do they, do they speak about peace and the need to seek peace? Do they preach about patience and the need for patience? 
Emily, our children's ministry director, has been teaching on the fruits of the Spirit. Are they gentle? Do they speak about gentleness? Are they kind? Are they merciful? Do they seek God's righteousness before all things? And as far as their influence goes, what does what the character and the culture of their ministry look like? What is the character and culture of their, their friends, their spheres of influence, in some cases even their families? Are their circles, are their, their communities built on forgiveness and repentance? Are they built on humility? Do they center humility? Do they, instead of seeking out the boastful and most loud people in the room, are they gentle with one another? Are they exclusive or inclusive based on what their preferences are and not God's preferences? Are they prayerful themselves? Do they speak of the importance of prayer in their lives, in your lives, in our lives? Do their cultures and communities speak of the importance of prayerfulness? These are all the things that Jesus has been speaking of uh, throughout the sermon. Uh, These are the fruits that we should be looking for and that we should pray to have exhibited in our own lives as well through the work of, of his spirit in us. And as I close, I'll just leave, leave us with this thought to consider. Throughout this whole time of uh, preparing uh, to preach on this text, I was thinking about um, why are there so many metaphors and word pictures with uh, fruit and trees, and why does Jesus use uh, that example specifically for this passage and in his interactions with Pharisees and his disciples. And I couldn't help but think about uh, one of the first scenes in the Bible in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it occurred to me that since that moment, since Adam and Eve fell and disobeyed God, we've been seeking the wrong fruit day in and day out in all of our lives in one way or another. We are so tempted by the fruit that the world centers in and prioritizes rather than the fruit uh, that Jesus preaches and has given us even. We seek the fruit of prideful success. We seek the fruit of approval from others. We seek the fruit of, of a style, of popularity, of being the most well-liked. Those are the things that at least I most immediately seek after rather than being meek, being humble, serving others first before my own needs are met. And I'm sure other people in the room uh, could agree and relate. I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggles with that. So when we think about these two trees, I think it's helpful to remember that we, since the fall, we have been struggling to recognize and seek out the right fruit. We're tempted by the fruit that ultimately leads to, leads to death. And that's why, as we prepare to take part in communion, that what Jesus has done for us is so important. Because in his life, death, and resurrection, we can enjoy the fruit of eternal life. We can enjoy the fruit of communion in peace with God and with each other. And so I just hope that is an encouragement to all of us today that even as we struggle to discern the right fruit from the wrong fruit, Jesus has not left us hopeless or, or without another option even.
And even as we think about trees, you know, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's the tree of, of life. Jesus hung on a tree that represented death so that we might be able to enjoy the fruit of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that there is truth for us to know and that you make it known to us, that you don't leave us to figure it out on our own, but that you illuminate our minds and our hearts with your spirit. And I pray that um, as we struggle to live by your spirit, to walk by your spirit, pray that you would remind us that we have another option, and that when we do fail, we can come to you in, in repentance and know that we are forgiven because all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.